Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 52nd post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Pedro Gatos and bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis since we began broadcasting on Co-op Radio in 2002. Has been investigating and seeking to present genuine, truth-seeking perspectives of how U.S. foreign policy impacts majority populations around the world. We also seek to identify other human-generated behaviors that either create or aggravate human misery outcomes in the world that by definition are preventable and therefore reversible. Over the past 18 years, our record speaks to the veracity of our reporting. The impact of U.S. foreign policy in the world, on the world, population, is unrivaled in reach and in impact. Our presumption is that the U.S. population is a compassionate and social justice-driven people, that if we know the truth of the matter, we support policies that promote the most fair and democratic outcomes. The problem is, too often, we are misinformed by our government and our mainstream media. Therefore, this show is dedicated to critically evaluating all information before accepting it as believable and as worthy for becoming the foundation for building our worldview understandings upon. Tonight, our show is dedicated to Ramsey Clark, who passed away this past week, and to the 60th anniversary of the Bay and Pigs invasion and its defeat. Enjoy. Good evening, Alternative News listeners. This is Pedro Gatos. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. And this is Co-op Radio, 91.7 FM on the dial and koop.org on the web. Today, I am speaking on April the 17th, 2021, for a show that will be pre-recorded to be played April 19th, 2021. This weekend... And this show is dedicated to the 60th anniversary of the Bay and Pigs invasion and defeat by the revolutionary forces and its Cuban people in 1961. Before we turn to the focus of our show, we want to provide context, but also wanted to provide a dedication and memorial to Ramsey Clark, who on April the 9th, 2021, passed away at his home. He was the Attorney General of the United States from 1966 to 1969 under LBJ, during which time he led the way on many progressive rights related to voting rights for African Americans and school desegregation. I wanted to add there's a very good article that captures Ramsey Clark's evolution ideologically as well as his long historic career put out by Covert Action by Frank Dorrell on April the 13th, 2021. It's called Ramsey Clark, former Attorney General of the United States and principled critic of the U.S. warfare state, dies at 93. Clearly, Ramsey Clark was the most progressive Attorney General in U.S. history, and his worldview evolved rapidly, largely as a consequence of revelations regarding the Vietnam War. 
1991, Ramsey Clark filed a complaint with the International War Crimes Tribunal accusing President George H.W. Bush of war crimes after spending two weeks visiting Iraq and documenting the effects of the war on its people. In 2018, Ramsey Clark said that he considered the U.S. foreign policy to be the greatest crime since World War II. American aggression had already created incalculable levels of misery in the world, he went on to say, and the poor of the planet are made poorer, dominated, and exploited by the foreign policies of the United States and its rich allies. In 2008, the United Nations General Assembly awarded Clark its prize, which it gives every year to human rights defenders. I think importantly, in another interview, he said that he was often overwhelmed by the, quote, the enormity of human misery on the planet, the enormity of poverty and suffering, the contrast between raw power and the vaster poverty of the impotent, and hope to at least make a small difference. In a remarkable speech, Ramsey Clark, in 1998, at the Church of Reverend James Lawson, criticized U.S. foreign policy as a representation of plutocratic interests. And, of course, that's the disproportionate influence and power afforded the most wealthy elite minority interests relative to the majority population. He also railed against the unjust war against the third world. And this video segment that I wanted to play features the first three and a half minutes of a video. And it has been taken down by YouTube, but not before it has become available for public consumption. Here is that excerpt from the Ramsey Clark speech in 1998 at the Church of Reverend James Lawson, in which he criticizes U.S. foreign policy. Take a listen. Everyone knows Ramsey Clark. He's a former U.S. Attorney General. He has been a consistent voice for the anti-war movement for three decades. Ramsey has traveled all over the world and has been in Iraq every year since the sanctions were imposed. If you think it's been a long evening, <clears throat> wait till I get through. <laughs> but we're going to have to take some long evenings because this planet is deeply troubled and the greatest cause of that trouble is our own government. In the speech that James, Reverend James Lawson referred to that Martin Luther King made on April of 1967, the most startling thing that he said at the time, the thing that caused the most anger and hatred to be directed toward him, was this sentence. The greatest purveyor of violence on earth is my own government. 31 years ago, why anyone would have been startled is hard to say because it was an obvious fact, but apparently we need more education in the obvious than we do examination of the obscure and unknown. Last year, U.S. military expenditures, with all the suffering on the planet, all the sickness and hunger and ignorance and pain. <clears throat> the American military budget was $265 billion. The second largest government expenditure for militarism was $48 billion. And that was the Russian Federation. In the United States military expenditures exceed those of the top 
12 government expenditures on Earth by themselves and are more than a third of all the military expenditures on the planet. We have a war party in this country and we've had it all along. And you can call it Democrat for a while, you can call it Republican for a while, but it has been the special economic interests in this society that have governed us from the time that we founded our governments on this continent. And the people have never controlled those governments. We call ourselves the world's greatest democracy. We are absolutely a plutocracy. It's the most obvious thing in the world. Wealth governs this country. And wealth uses military violence to control the rest of the world as best it can. And we're responsible. And we will pay the price for it. If we don't control our violence, if we don't control the effect of the symbol of our glorification of violence on our children and on the rest of the planet, uh, then this human species is going to be the first to destroy itself completely. And that's the road the United States government has put us on. So it seems really important as we review this excerpt from Ramsey Clark's a speech of 1998 that he cites Dr. Martin Luther King when he claims that the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today is my own government. Those are the words of Dr. King on April 4th, 1967. Also in the article, he, he laments, Ramsey Clark does, that as of 1998, more than a third of military expenditures on the planet were expended by the United States, and it exceeded those of the top 12 expenditures combined of the following 12 nations. So if you look at today, or as recently today as I could find, in July of 2019, in another article on the same site on April 30th, 2020, citing the 2019 latest data on military expenditures compiled by the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, CIPRI, that there were still these stunning disproportionate military spending by the United States. In 2019, the world spent over $1.9 trillion on militaries last year. That was according to the CIPRI data. But the United States was still the biggest driver of that growth, with $732 billion in 2019, accounting for a full 38% of all global military spending. This is still well over a third of the total world expenditures, as Ramsey Clark had indicated back in 1998. And at the same time, it was more than the next 10 countries combined versus the 12 countries combined back in Ramsey Clark's speech period there. The other thing that was mentioned was, and we've mentioned on this show before as well, is in the 2019 article, and this is both of these articles are sourced by nationalpriorities.org, but they indicate that we are running 800 military bases in 2019 in 80 different countries. When we think of aggression, we always associate it with Russia. But when you look at Russia, and they did not speak to that issue in this article, but we've documented it before by David Vine that just a few years ago when this data was available, Russia, I think, had maybe a half dozen to uh, 10 foreign military bases in which all of them, except for maybe one or two, were in former Soviet republics. And here the United States has 800 military bases throughout the world. But returning to our tribute to Ramsey Clark and his ideas expressed in his 1998 speech that are consistent with Dr. Martin Luther King, going back to Dr. King's Beyond Vietnam speech in 1967, listen to what he says. 
it's not just that we're the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. He also indicates that Vietnam was a symptom of a far deeper malady. It was a symptom of a deeper problem, not the only problem. And the malady was within the American spirit. Alienated spirit was within the American expenditures on militarism. This alienated spirit, if you will, that Dr. King refers to, later in his speech he says we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society in order to save our soul, in a sense, is what he's talking about. But he goes on and says, when machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. So 31 years after Dr. King's words, Ramsey Clark in 1998 is reasserting the truth and the vision that Dr. King had that was still true in 1998. And today, as we've just cited, it's still true as well. I think the other thing that's so important in order to provide the context and able to us to look more honestly and critically at our foreign policy is Dr. King's words in the same speech in which he says the value of compassion and nonviolence, it helps to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his or her questions, to know his assessment of us. Instead, we were bombarded by a one-sided presentation of our foreign policy and the demonizing of anyone that does not carry the same tune that's consistent with our foreign policy. When our mainstream media, instead of critically evaluating our policies by government and keeping a check on government, when it serves more as a news service for the government, propagating as truths those things that have not been proven with certainty, then we create a population that is unable to see anything from the enemy's point of view because it's never presented. So as we turn our attention to the rest of the show on the Bay of Pigs invasion, we present information and ideas that are not made available to the American public, but are historically and can be historically validated. The Bay of Pigs history that we've been influenced by comes mainly from U.S. foreign policy perspective. It is often spoken from the veterans of the invasion force, which, by the way, were primarily Cuban exiles, although there were U.S. military and CIA personnel on the landing team as well, despite our consistent denials at the time. And what we hear is that the portrayal of additional air support, which many expected but which JFK had forbidden, that that was the major difference between defeat and victory. That's what's most often portrayed as a decisive factor, not the fact that this was an invasion against the will of the majority population of Cubans at the time of the invasion that was put down in less than three days. In other words, I think the most important take-home learning point of the Bay of Pigs is to understand that the overwhelming support of the Cuban people was behind Fidel Castro and the revolutionary forces, and that is why Cuba has continued, actually, to be able to sustain itself despite U.S. economic sanctions, embargoes, terrorist acts that have taken over 3,000 Cubans, etc. At a personal note, I've not just studied the matter. I've been down to Cuba seven or eight times. I've visited the Bay of Pigs on four or five occasions. I've talked with people in that area of the landing that are close to my age, which means that they were alive when that landing occurred. One of the most striking memories I have, though, is in that same part of Cuba, which is on the southern coast. My friend Israel, he and his family have a picture of within months or within a year of the revolutionary victory in 1959, they had running water for the first time. 
I just cannot express to you how fundamentally important that notion is, that this revolutionary government led by Fidel Castro made promises years before that they would address rural and agrarian reform, that they would address the illiteracy rates that are so high in Cuba, the premature death rates from preventable diseases, the water and electricity, which are not made available to many parts of the country. All of these things were promised. All of these things were delivered within a year or two of the revolution in an, in an astounding turn for the, the vast majority of Cubans' quality of life improved so significantly. So to begin the discussion on the Bay of Pigs, I think it's important to reiterate what was briefly mentioned. In a declassified memo that was declassified in 1991, it was a State Department memo of April 6, 1960, 31 years before. It was authored by Deputy Undersecretary of State for Inter-American Affairs, Lester D. Mallory. It indicated the majority of Cubans, this is a quote, the majority of Cubans support Castro. There is no effective political opposition. The only foreseeable means of alienating internal support from the government is through disenchantment and disaffection based on economic dissatisfaction and hardship. Every possible means should be undertaken promptly to weaken the economic life, denying money and supplies to Cuba, to decrease monetary and real wages, to bring about hunger, desperation, and overthrow of the government. So pay a particular attention to the deceitfulness of how we executed our Bay of Pigs invasion, and you will discover the same types of tendencies that we have today in misrepresenting world events in order to get public opinion behind a foreign policy initiative. On March 17, 1960, President Eisenhower approves a CIA plan, a program of covert action against the Castro regime. It included creating a unified Cuban opposition to the Castro regime, despite its popularity. The development of a means for mass communication to the Cuban people is part of a powerful propaganda offensive which later included Radio Swan and those types of things. The creation and development of a covert intelligence and action organization within Cuba, which would respond to the orders and directions of the exile opposition. The amount of terrorist activity that occurred in Cuba by such groups was overwhelming, yet the American public never realized it. And then finally, the development of paramilitary forces outside of Cuba for future guerrilla action was included in this plan. These goals were to be achieved, quote, in such a manner as to avoid the appearance of U.S. intervention. There's the admittal of the deceit, not let the American public know what was going on. In 1961, the White House, in a January 3rd, 1961 meeting described by Richard Bissell, he was a CIA director of plans in his book, Reflections of a Cold Warrior from Yalta to the Bay of Pigs by Richard M. Bissell published in 1996, quote, the president, that would be Eisenhower, noted that he was prepared to move against Castro before Kennedy's inauguration on January 20th, 1961, if a really good excuse was provided by Castro. Failing that, he said, perhaps we could think of manufacturing something that would be generally acceptable. Listen to that. Manufacture something that's not even true. <laughs> in other words, it's a false flag declaration. In fact, listen to this language. This is but another example of his willingness to use covert action specifically to fabricate events to achieve his objectives in foreign policy, end quote. 
This is instructive. Everything that the news reports about different issues that are going on in this world may be fabrications rather than real events. And that's why we must demand proof, evidence of these claims. Here's more on some of these covert, deceitful activities. Destabilization strategies to distort the model's image and undermine the Cuban economy. This was an army memorandum from March 1st, 1962, entitled Possible Actions to Provoke, Harass, or Disrupt Cuba. It outlines a number of ideas that would provide cover for a devastating military assault on Havana. It included trying to create a social base for counter-revolution. This is important because in so many countries, agents of ours are receiving monies from like the National Endowment for Democracy or the United States Agency for International Development that may be primarily not to help the country, but primarily to undermine countries that we don't like their governments. So we create a social base for counter-revolution, according to this 1962 memo. We help drain Cuba of its human capital. We try to attract its most talented and educated folks to Florida, in, in, in other words. Our wet-foot, dry-foot immigration policy that was in effect for so long, in which Cubans, the only people of any country in the world that could come to the United States, and as soon as they put a foot on U.S. territory, automatically were streamlined for citizenship. These are the kinds of incentives that were made to attract the more wealthy of Cuba, many of which had some of their property expropriated during the revolution. Additionally, these memos revealed other strategies. Stigmatize the Cuban political project, okay, through obviously, through media mainly, and then attempt to distract or detract from its social support in order to neutralize its influence in Latin America. These are all written documents. This is what we do, but is never reported. So in order to create a pretext where there is not one, as Eisenhower suggested in his earlier citing, the post Pigs operations included a number of such contextual potential provocations or false justifications. There was a, the Northwoods document, and David Roop wrote about a book, Body of Secrets, by investigative reporter James Bamford in, in his book, U.S. Military Drafted to Plans to Terrorize U.S. Cities to Provoke War with Cuba. In May 1st of 2001, he wrote in an article describing Body of Secrets book that the earlier CIA-backed Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba by Cuban exiles had been a disastrous failure in which the military was not allowed to provide firepower. The military leaders now wanted a shot at it, he wrote, quote, the whole thing was so bizarre, end quote, says Bamford, noting public and international support would be needed for an invasion, but apparently neither the American public nor the Cuban public wanted to see U.S. troops deployed to drive out Castro. Reflecting this, the U.S. plan called for the establishing prolonged military, not democratic, control over the island nation after the invasion that would be provoked. The Joint Chiefs at the time were headed by Eisenhower appointee Army General Lyman L. Limnitzer, who, with the signed plans in hand, made a pitch to McNamara on March 13, 1962, recommending Operation Northwoods be run by the military. Three days later, President Kennedy told Limnitzer directly there was virtually no possibility of ever using overt force to take Cuba. In the same article, David Rupp indicates that in the early 1960s, America's top military leaders reportedly drafted plans to kill innocent people 
and commit acts of terrorism in the United States cities to create public support for a war against Cuba, codenamed Operation Northwoods. The plans reportedly included the possible assassination of Cuban emigres, sinking boats of Cuban refugees on the high seas, hijacking planes, blowing up a U.S. ship, and even orchestrating violent terrorism in U.S. cities. The plans were developed, he writes, as a way to trick the American public and the international community into supporting a war to oust Cuba's then-new leader, Fidel Castro. This is just not an author, Bamford, here alleging these deals. These The documents uh, were unclassified, later unclassified, that affirmed everything that he was saying. I have looked at them. These were the plans that were eventually rejected by JFK. But it gets you thinking, what wasn't rejected by JFK or future or past presidents and have deceitfully resulted in false understandings about our foreign policy. Uh, he writes, America's top military brass even contemplated causing U.S. military casualties, writing, quote, we could blow up a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay and blame it on Cuba, end quote, and casualty lists in U.S. newspapers would cause a helpful wave of national indignation, end quote. This March 13, 1962, eventually unclassified top-secret special handling document. It was a memorandum for the Secretary of Defense, and it was entitled Justification for U.S. Military Intervention in Cuba. It, it described and was a description of pretexts which could provide justification for U.S. military intervention in Cuba. This is not things that Cuba did. This is things that we, that we created out of thin air. Here are some examples. Codename Operation Northwoods. Plans were developed as ways to trick the American public and the international community. It included these plans from the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff to hijack planes, blow up a U.S. ship, violent terrorism in the United States cities, as we mentioned, fake a civilian aircraft shootdown. This is documented by Harper's July 1st, 2001 article from Harper's uh, The Truth Is Out. 1962 memo from National Security Agency of July 1st, 2001 publication. But before we detail any other examples, we need to take a quick break. We want to remind you this is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin, bringing light into darkness. We'll be back right after this. <laughs> 